roughly 92% of all new utility scale solar fields in the United States were on CATEL modules. Our calculus in starting Toledo Solar was that this technology had never been made available, quite frankly, to those non-utility markets. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about an alternative to silicon solar panels. It's called cadmium telluride, or CADTEL, and it might be a surprise to know that almost all new utility-scale solar farms use this material and not silicon. That's really embarrassing for me because I worked pretty intimately in that space and couldn't tell you what CADTEL was until I spoke with today's guest. That might be because the industry also refers to this technology as thin film solar. When it comes to all the non-utility-scale solar operations, that would be the commercial, residential, and industrial panels, CADTEL has almost no market share. That's still supplied with silicon. Until now. My guest is at the time of this recording, the only privately held solar manufacturer in the country. Their operations are tiny compared to the Asian manufacturers and the other CADTEL company, First Solar. My guest says there are several reasons this thin film solution has overtaken silicon like it has. The process is far simpler to fabricate. You essentially spray CADTEL between two sheets of tempered glass. He also says CADTEL can absorb more of the light spectrum. The sun shines down on us. And as we discussed, CADTEL panels don't fight the urge like silicon to get too hot. Is the potential to bring these CADTEL cells to an entirely different market that holds the potential for a promising future? My guest today is Aaron Bates, founder, chairman, and CEO of Toledo Solar, a cadmium telluride solar module manufacturer based in, you guessed it, Toledo, Ohio. Toledo's nickname is the Glass City, with a history that goes back over 130 years. Cadmium Telluride Solar was developed at the University of Toledo, and First Solar, the 800-pound CADTEL gorilla, is literally headquartered 10 miles up the road. I was interested to learn, like Origami Solar in episode 143, how sustainable the American solar manufacturing base is getting. I was also curious to know how a growing company like this can compete against enormous economies economies of scale, both across the ocean and over in the next zip code. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Aaron Bates. Aaron Bates, founder, chairman, and CEO of Toledo Solar. And Aaron, I think most of us have heard of silicon solar panels. You're using a cadmium telluride or CADTEL technology. What makes CADTEL better? CADTEL as a semiconductor has several different properties than silicon as a semiconductor for photovoltaics. Principal among them are really three, right? The first being what we term as spectral response. It's also called the band gap of the semiconductor. Basically, what wavelengths of the sun are absorbed by a semiconductor that make it photoactive, right? Silicon has what we term kind of a narrow band gap with our sun, meaning that it really optimally sees only kind of a narrow wavelength of visible light. Throughout the day, it's only seeing a narrow band of light in which it can be highly 
optimal. Cat Tell, however, has a band gap that almost perfectly aligns with our sun, meaning that it essentially sees all of the light, all of the visible light from our sun, kind of on the edges actually of invisible light, which is like ultraviolet in these short wavelengths, so like early morning light, and then the longer wavelengths, which are infrared, which are throughout the day and then towards the end of the day. Roughly about 50% of our sun's light is visible and about 50% or roughly is invisible in ultraviolet, infrared, etc. And so as a semiconductor, it basically sees more sun throughout the day, the month, the year, etc. That translates to kilowatt hours because we live in a world in which we're talking about energy, right? And so energy is priced by the kilowatt hour. So the more energy you can produce during the day, it becomes advantageous to maximize the amount of hours per day that you can produce. The second is what we term thermal coefficient that basically relates to not only the degradation of the semiconductor, but also its ability to perform in warm climates or as it warms up. Generally, silicon modules, not to call anyone out, it's just sort of the elemental table. This is the reason why like, you have a fan on your laptop or you have thermal management components on your phone. That is because silicon IC chips do not perform well when they get warm. I don't mean hot, I mean like warm, like 50 degrees centigrade warm. This is why when you look at warranties for say silicon modules, generally speaking, they don't really cover silicon modules that are in a region of the world in which they'll be operating at a temperature of above like 45 to 50 degrees centigrade. Just the actual absorbing photoactive semiconductor is getting that warm. Just like a dark car on this sunny day, right, is going to get warm, even if the ambient temperature is like 71 degrees Fahrenheit. Cattell, however, does not have those limitations on temperature. In fact, it performs extremely well in warmer climates. And then, of course, the third is just that Cattell can be manufactured anywhere in the world. It has been manufactured globally. And here in the States specifically since the early 2000s. And it can do so cost effectively and prior to IRO, frankly, with an unlevel playing field. And so when you kind of look at all of those things, you have essentially the most robust, historically speaking, semiconductor technology for photovoltaics in the world. You have it producing more power longer, degrading less throughout a 30 or 40 year lifetime. And that means that warranties can become covered better. That means insurance products have a lower cost of capital. That means that a given solar field or an array will produce not only longer through the day, but for a longer period of time. And you have the fact that it's historically been pretty cost competitive, again, on on level playing field. Yeah. Aaron, just for the listener, she said 50 degrees centigrade was kind of the upper limit for silicon chips. That's about 112 degrees Fahrenheit mm-hmm. in uh, local speak. The cells are dark. Help me understand this. How hot would ambient temperature need to be for you to get up to 112 degrees? So if you had a 100 degree day, mm-hmm. would that get the cells up to 112 yeah. in the direct sunlight absorbing a lot of it's going to depend on wind, actually, right? Because air movement, yeah. this is why silicon modules have like aluminum sheets, generally speaking, on the back. It's to move heat, right? And there's also like an air gap on most solar panels that's like 10 inches or something. So the more air movement is actually going to be helping to keep that semiconductor cooler. But to your point, I mean, you can have a 70 degree day and that semiconductor could be operating at a temperature above 100, 112 degrees Fahrenheit, ambient temperature. Yeah. Keeping in mind, by the way, that silicon modules generally have a higher current. The way that those cells are made, they just have a lower voltage, a higher current, you know, current is heat. They generally want to operate hotter anyway. So it's sort of an uphill battle for thermal management that any silicon semiconductor is going to kind of have, right? Yeah. I came from oil field. How tough are these solar cells? You mentioned that you also manufactured the glass. We actually purchased the glass, but yeah, it's an all glass construction. It's tempered glass. The manufacturing process is quite different than that of silicon. We're not growing ingots and slicing them into wafers and then soldering them together. None of that happens, right? It's very elegant, actually, in its simplicity. So we essentially vaporize metal, which is cattel. That's an alloy material. Like we don't work with raw cadmium. It's like sodium chloride is table salt, right? That's a molecule, not atoms. We basically vaporize it in a very high speed system and we spray it directly on the glass. So there's no polymer in between it. There's 
no lamination to make it go on the glass. We essentially center it on the glass at the glass's transition temperature. This is all happening at extreme temperatures, right? Like 1200 centigrade. You're building this semiconductor that is like a 30% the thickness of a human hair directly on that glass. And then downstream, it's basically one big cell. And then instead of soldering, we actually use lasers to ablate the material to create cells, basically. You turn one big cell into, I think it's 154. And then you laminate it with the polymer and another sheet of tempered glass. The overall thickness for us is about 6.4 millimeters. I don't remember what that translates to in inches. But, we'll do um, the translation for you. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but it's basically thicker than a windshield, right? And it's stronger than a windshield. It's extremely strong. Our weight load for our size modules right now, we produce two feet by four feet or 60 by 120 centimeters. And I think that the static load for that is well over a thousand pounds. It's nearly bulletproof glass basically at that point. In terms of the actual cells themselves, the reason why in CADTEL you have lifetime warranties against cell cracking is because you can't crack them. Unlike what happens with silicon where micro cracks or micro fissures are a real problem for degradation. Your Toledo Solar base in Ohio. I'm really excited about all the onshoring or reshoring we're hearing about, but I'm always trying to get to the bottom of this question. Can you build a complete system here? For instance, I had a guest one time who had produced the aluminum frames on solar. Actually, he produced steel frames for solar panels because no one in the U.S. built the frames. Is your system fully sourceable in this hemisphere on down the line? Mm. Or are there chips that we're missing? Yeah. Things like that? No, no, no. We import no chips. Not just us, but the Cattel industry, which would also include First Solar, also in this hemisphere, they have plants in Malaysia, Vietnam, India, and then in Perrysburg, Ohio, where we're at, which is a suburb of Toledo. Cattel has been manufactured in the Toledo region for 20 plus years, and it's been sourced from, at least speaking for ourselves, within a 180 mile radius, everything that we buy. We import nothing, basically, from outside of North America. I mean, we have some suppliers that are secondary suppliers that we actually source from Canada, but for us, Canada is about 45 minutes north. It's East Detroit, basically, right? Yeah. Cattel was very fortunate for those reasons to not be affected by the polysilicon crazy supply chain shortages that happened both during and then post lockdowns due to coronavirus. It's sort of a glass city USA technology. I mean, the reason why it's all in Toledo, Ohio and has historically been here for 20 plus years is because it was invented in Toledo, Ohio in the mid 1980s at the University of Toledo. It's all derivative of the glass manufacturing industry, right? Automotive glass, architectural glass. Toledo, Ohio has always sort of been glass city and I think continues to be so today. You mentioned everything is sourceable close by. So what can you tell us about cadmium and telluride in terms of domestic availability, price, volatility? Where's mm -hmm. it come from? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So cadmium and tellurium on the elemental table are just, you know, two elements. They are derivative of the mining industry. So like zinc and copper, I forget which is which, but they're both derived as byproducts historically from those mining operations. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, whenever folks were mining copper or zinc, they were taking byproducts and throwing them away, basically. Once there was this discovery where if you take these two elements and you put them together as a molecule, there's actually a photoactive nature and there's a benefit to it. And so then an entire industry grew up starting like the mid 1990s around that and the mining industry realized we can monetize what we used to just throw away. I mean, cadmium has been used here and there for like nickel cadmium batteries still is today. It's a pretty prevalent element, quite frankly. Tellarium that's not used in many places other than solar. And frankly, it's due to first solar. Over the last 25 years, they've created a pretty impressive global recycling program for CADTEL. The reason for that is that it keeps costs down. There's a huge percentage. I think it's I don't know, roughly 50 some percent is actually derived from recycled end of life and manufacturing scrap. 
up, which is kind of like plastics or steel. I know that in the future, the plan in the industry is to get that number around 90% over the next 20 years. So it's kind of cool because it's a completely different supply chain. There's nothing that is polysilicon or silicon based in our supply chain. When you get down into like after the solar panels and you get into like power conversion devices, there's a lot of chips and boards and things like that, but those are predominantly made overseas. Our glass comes from Ohio and Illinois. I mean, even our junction boxes are made in Tennessee. We source everything pretty locally. Yeah, that's nice. It said on your website that you serve the residential commercial market. Why not the utility scale solar market? Yeah, that's a good question. Historically speaking, CADTEL has been in the utility markets in the U.S. for 20 plus years. And essentially, when I say that, I mean for Solar Inc., as we all know them now. They went public in the early to mid-2000s. Back then, the amount of solar as a country was relatively small. They were in the servicing utilities markets since. Now, last year, 2022, roughly 92% of all new utility scale solar fields in the United States were on CATEL modules, which is for solar. The utility markets have really come to rely upon the benefits, as I sort of initially laid out, of this technology in those fields. These are the things that really drive huge solar fields, right? And that's utility scale. Also, historically, about for the last 20-some years in the U.S., about 45% of the total U.S. market has been what we consider to be non-utility sector, which is commercial, industrial, residential, existing municipal utilities and things like that, but really kind of smaller scale solar. And so our calculus in starting to leave solar was that this technology had never been made available, quite frankly, to those non-utility markets. In total right now, I believe over 50% of all utility scale solar in this country is on CATEL modules. And again, last year was 92. So that number continues just to go up and up and up. And so when we started this company, we realized that there's 45% of this market in the United States right now that continues to grow, that is historically served only by silicon modules that are made overseas, or at least their semiconductors are made overseas. And how that sort of makes its way through the supply chain is sort of hard to document, right? And that was kind of our calculus in 2019 when we started the company, was just basically taking this utility scale technology that's been tried and true for decades and offer it to kind of the alternative markets. Is that the real differentiator between you and First Solar? Is First Solar is really going after the utility scale and you're going after the CNI? CNI and residential, correct. CI, yeah. Res- yeah, that's that's really the difference. I mean, our path to market is different. The way we go to market is different, obviously, being the only privately held solar panel manufacturing in the country, which is what we are today. By that definition, of course, making the semiconductor right here in the States, that's kind of the differentiator to us. I mean, they're six miles down the road. They have probably millions of square foot on their campus. We have a 30-acre facility that's a 300,000 square foot building. So for us, it's a pretty good-sized building, but it pales in comparison to like their global footprint, right? They just really focus on that market, and they do yeah. a great job doing it, you know? Yeah. And I think for the listeners here, one of the reasons why I think you may be wondering why Aaron and First Solar are getting along so well is because it is such a wide gap between the domestic supply and the domestic demand, right? So much is coming Mm -hmm. from overseas. (laughs) It's going to take a lot more supply, right, domestically. Mm -hmm. So it's a big sandbox, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, correct. And to your point, it's not just a driver, I think, anymore of should companies try to source in the U.S. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a simple economics, which always sort of dictate markets, right, outside of policy, because policies come and go, but it's always economics that sort of last. Even from a supply chain perspective, projects get delayed. There's always the global supply chain as well, because I think last year, like 98 percent of photovoltaic silicon cells were made in China. China is not just servicing the United States markets, they're servicing the entire global markets. To be clear, there are no solar panel manufacturers, semiconductor manufacturers in Europe, in Turkey. It's not just the US. China dominates the globe right now in terms of that manufacturing supply chain. It's still early days for widespread domestic solar cell manufacturing. You may have already said this. Are you competitive with China and Southeast Asia in terms of price? 
Yeah, Kintel has been historically competitive with overseas-made solar panels since its inception, really. It's a global supply chain now, right? It's now the first solar has built a really robust supply chain over 25 years. Even before, uh, quite frankly, there was an attempt from a policy perspective of trying to incentivize and levelize the playing field, it's always been historically competitive. Cattel, generally speaking, because it produces more power during the day, historically has always had a faster payback period. So when you're a utility-scale customer or off-taker, if you're a commercial industrial off-taker or if you're a Mr. Mrs. Smith that own home. I don't actually remember seeing where it wasn't, where CADTEL will always produce more power faster so that your payback period is faster as compared to silicon. I see this a lot with storage with the lithium ion folks versus, you know, a lot of those newer storage technologies like zinc and flow batteries, things like that. Are there customers who are like, well, I want silicon because I know silicon? Is there any sort of educational hurdle? there? Yeah, sure. That's a good question. There's always been, especially when we started about four years ago, especially in the beginning, there's an educational hurdle just because in the utility scale solar world, everybody knows Cattel. When you look at the non-utility markets that have last 20 years only been serviced by silicon, right? They don't know what Cattel is. That's always something that we've had to invest pretty heavily as a company, especially given the fact that our path to market is not selling through distribution by and large. We did partner with one distributor called Renvu Solar recently, but historically we sell directly to installers and developers. Right. We sort of skip the middle, if you will. I'm not sure we always will, but I know based on our size, that's kind of been our path to market strategy. So we've had to invest a lot more over the last four years on inside sales, inside sales engineering types of tools required to help our customers sort of show the value proposition of the technology to their markets. We're always trying to get better at that. I think that's just kind of our job within the ecosystem. More often than not, though, the end user themselves in our markets, they aren't necessarily tied to a technology. There's been a lot of commodification of solar panels. It's just people think, oh, solar panels and solar panels. Once you dive into it, it's just not really the case. You have a lot of companies that put different names and labels on solar panels, but the internal semiconductor is the same from the same factory, from the same area of the world. I think our first year or two, there was probably a lot more uphill battle than there has been lately. But yeah, that's something that probably will continue. I think that Qcells just announced that they're building a factory in Georgia, which is going to build the semiconductors here as well as the full module, which will be the first, to my knowledge, really since 2012, full boat, sort of under one roof, silicon to panel manufacturing, which for the record, we're always in favor of. We think that companies should be building plants here and paying Americans to work there. And Americans will buy those products, right? I don't look at it that dissimilar than the automotive industry in the early 80s, where Honda came in and built plants. And now I think Honda employs more Americans than General Motors. I think there's sort of that kind of sea change happening right now. And that's a bit of a longer answer, I suppose, but that's kind of how we look at it, I guess. No, I think that's important. Aaron, you mentioned the IRA Inflation Reduction mm-hmm. Act and the IIGA, the Infrastructure Act that came before it. There's things I like and things I don't like about that, but I'm a big fan of the regulatory incentives in place, just anything that can make business here easier. So has the government, have those bills made it easier for your business to succeed, especially in an industry where solar powers are a commodity and your foreign competition is so entrenched? What have you seen over the last year or so? From our small perspective, we were pretty close to that. If you look at the mid 2000s, late 2000s, you had the United States investing pretty heavily right, in domestic solar. There was a ton of money that was sort of granted and loaned and lots, all sorts of like mechanisms to sort of get capital into companies of various technologies to sort of build plants and get in front of this next sort of phase of energy generation and manufacturing domestically. And the error, hindsight's 2020, right? China, they're very good at this, looked around and just saw that there were no guardrails on trade to protect those investments that we as Americans basically made. They basically came in and just decimated the entire industry and not just here, I mean, globally. And that was really like that 2000 
2011 to 2012 sort of timeline. That's why you see hundreds of solar companies that just failed, just went out of business. Except for one, of course, for solar, which had sort of a downturn in 2012 where they reorganized their global manufacturing, but they thrived right after that. When we look at the IRA now, I think that like most things, there's always some cleanup to be done. Me personally, I'm subjective. I would have liked to have seen other things like the ITC tax credit, maybe not necessarily applying as much to those are federal tax dollars, right, that are going to basically incentivize the continued import and also to be clear, the use of slave labor overseas to sort of benefit. We'll see what happens in the couple of years. I mean, administration also promised there would be no new tariffs on imported goods. There was a circumvention investigation that the Commerce Department did that found that most of the things that are being labeled as coming from Vietnam and Malaysia are not actually made there. These are circumvention laws, circumvention laws that have been on the books since the 1920s here. And most countries have them. When you look at like what India did, which last year in March, they put on a 38% tariff for all foreign made solar modules. And First Solar invested billions in building plants domestically in India to service their future. I think that's a really good example of where policy can incentivize economic development and private dollars to sort of follow. I view the Inflation Reduction Act as being part of that effort, right? I think it's part of it is to sort of put up some incentives, some carrot around having companies, incentivizing companies to invest here in the country. Now, the United States has its own sort of like unique position. The access to capital in which to build billion dollar facilities has to have a low cost of capital. And of course, we live in an era in which interest rates are high, right? When you have policies that are sort of there, you look at the capital markets, both private and public, and you sort of say, okay, if you're on that side of the equation, investing in solar is a bad idea. Making capital available to solar historically has been very risky, right? The concept that those companies would exist for more than five years historically in our lifetime has not been a good track record in the United States. And so when I look at what I think the Inflation Reduction Act and a lot of the language that made it in is really to, A, maybe level the playing field a bit so that it prevents China's next step of trying to do whatever they're going to do on the dumping side of things. The brute force economics, if you will, of the way that they're able to sort of play ball. Then at the same time, incentivize companies and whether it's Toledo Solar or whether it's Q-Cells, right? A South Korean company that's investing billions now in the country. It lowered that cost of capital because it's helping to de-risk that capital's availability. So I think nothing's perfect, right? Policy is like religion. Everybody's got it. Everybody's right. But I think that we kind of look at it as being a pretty good step in the right direction to get more dollars into the United States to build things here. Yeah, good point. And then it says on your website that you're now getting into semi-transparent solar cells for products like Windows. Mm -hmm. I had on a guest to discuss that about a year or so ago, Ubiquitous Energy. Have you started production on those products and how big do you expect that market will be? So it was about a year and a half, two years ago. Our CTO, Dr. Al Kampan, he was the researcher at the University of Toledo back in the 1980s that actually worked with the people that before it was first solar, Toledo, Ohio, right? They're too humble to admit it, but they sort of invented cadmium telluride for use in this market. Al retired as Professor Emeritus of Physics at the University of Toledo, and I met him and we all sort of started Toledo Solar back in 2019. He and his team invented a way that's extremely manufacturable, that's based on the same semiconductor that is as robust as it historically has been, being Cantel, to make it transparent. And to make it transparent according to a given market, a market like architectural glass, where generally oh, it's only 20% or 25% of the light is really coming through, it's quote unquote tinted, or like a sunroof on a car, which is usually about 10 to 15% 
transmissible light, the rest is trying to be filtered out. We can basically tune the transparency of a CATEL semiconductor to its market. It's pretty cool. And like most things CATEL, it's very cost effective to manufacture. The DOE looked at it and said, yeah, you know, this is a great market. These are emerging markets. Solar generally is not part of the calculus for an architect or a developer to like build a building. Automotive is not historically thinking about how to make the glass itself photoactive. We were awarded a commercialization grant a couple of years ago. Now, I mean, the technology has been solved for. Manufacturability has been solved for. What we're doing now is UL certifying a market. It's producing a lot of voltage and a lot of current, right? It's a lot of power per square meter. What we make, to be clear, is the most powerful transparent photovoltaic semiconductor in the world, as far as I know. So you're talking like efficiencies, depending on transparency, which we tune in anywhere from 14, 15, 16% conversion efficiency. So it's pretty high. What we're doing now is tailoring our product offering to these markets, specifically to the market. So for instance, automotive is going to have a different type of transparency required, a different form factor of the glass, different curvature of the glass. How are they going to pick up all that voltage? What are they going to do with it when they either are charging a battery or what are they going to do with the power? The same is true with architectural glass, what we call building integrated photovoltaics or BIPV. It's basically designing large sheets of glass and manufacturing them that are producing a lot of voltage. And then what is that building going to do with it? Usually they go to a systems room, they have to power convert. These are things that architects and engineers for like real estate development have never had to really think about too much. The plan is in 2024, we'll be manufacturing some aspects, probably not 20 different products, probably only several in our plant in Toledo to be servicing some of those markets. And normally we're looking at the OEM side of things on automotive, not aftermarket. Same with like residential. That being said, we are working with a few companies on like skylights, right? And sort of like things that would be kind of after the place is built. But we try to stay pretty focused on those original equipment manufacturer, sort of higher up on the food chain manufacturing side of things, if that makes sense. Yeah. Aaron, going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. The entire global cost of energy is tied to it, historically speaking. P people die when uh, it gets too expensive, and natural gas is great. It's just a finite resource. Same thing as oil, right? Nuclear. Unlike oil and to a degree natural gas, it's cleaner, although every rod of fissile material ever used in this country for nuclear generation is still in every one of those facilities, no matter if they're shut down or not, which is why the legacy cost is extremely high. The federal government and state governments still have to pay to guard these shut down facilities because you have all these rods that are basically sitting there encased and we don't know what to do with them. But generally speaking, that's steam power. So it's a clean energy, if not for the fuel itself. Well, for all the listeners out there who want to hear more about possible domestic recycling, episode 134, Curio, has that programming. Oh, note that. I'm sorry, I missed it. That sounds, I'll have to check that out. Coal. And I'll add coal with carbon capture. Expensive, but I don't hate coal. I mean, I grew up in the steel business, so I think our best rate of return is still in steel. We use coal and coke, and we're not going to stop using steel anytime soon, hopefully. Wind. Great technology. There's a lot of sort of NIMBY about wind here in Ohio. There's a lot of it. It's a great technology to partner with solar because areas are generally more windy at night, not all the time, but it has a very low carbon footprint. The economics of it are still sort of tough. Solar, you guys. Solar hit grid parity in this country in 2016. Not to sort of speak in a silly way, but the future seems pretty bright, at least for the next 15, 20 years for solar in this country. I think that the cost will continue to stabilize and come down. I think that domestic manufacturing is kind of a no-brainer. I'm obviously biased in that. And until we figure out fusion and what it costs, solar seems like sort of a good way to go, right? Biofuels. 
Biofuels are great. I've personally worked in biofuels a bit, invested in some biofuel companies and startups in the past. The problem is the cost, like most things, but I feel like kind of like the solar industry in its infancy, those things will get lower and I think we'll figure it out better. I don't know that we're going to power the planet on biofuels, but I'd love to be alive if we figure it out. Hydroelectric. It's great. I mean, hydroelectric, there's no dendrites being formed and there are solar installations that during the day they use power and the excess power pumps water up and then at night they drop it down. There's no dendrites to be formed like lithium ion batteries. Nothing against lithium. It's just a different thing. But stored potential is great, right? Geothermal. Big fan of geothermal. I always like houses that run on geothermal. The cost at the end of the life is kind of a bummer, but I would love to live in a world in which we were more efficient and lower cost on harnessing geothermal, both for heating and cooling. You can do both. Energy storage. The weak link in the chain of renewable energy right now from a technology perspective, but there's a lot of money being poured in sort of the wild west of renewables right now. Hopefully we figure it out soon. I don't think energy generation is the problem. We could talk about it all day long. I think energy storage, as most people know, is the question. Energy efficiency. It's critical, right? I mean, that's the key. CATEL has a theoretical single junction maximum, what we call the Shockley Quasar limit of 31% for a single junction device. Silicon has about 25%. So in our world, we're sort of halfway there, if you will, or two thirds of the way there where silicon is kind of up against its ceiling. We, First Solar, and all of our academic partners work every day on energy efficiency including power conversion efficiency and the rest. So conversion efficiency, energy efficiency is dollars and life and adoption. And then finally, fusion power. Yeah, I hope they figure it out. I can't wait to see how that scales. I've read the papers like the rest. I hope that I'm alive when we start to adopt it. I think in the solar industry, it's probably the only thing that people ask me, what is going to be the biggest sort of like long-term sea change to the solar industry over time? I would say when they figure out how to not only adopt at scale and then make it cost-effective for fusion, because that would be the holy grail, right? That's the answer. All right, Aaron Bates, Toledo Solar, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay. Really appreciate the time and look forward to talking again. That was Aaron Bates, founder, chairman, and CEO of Toledo Solar, a CADTEL solar manufacturer based in Ohio's Glass City. I want to thank Aaron for his time, as well as Kathy Berardi and Marissa Davis for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode one. 161. Be sure to join us next week when we explore how the Department of Energy is helping to facilitate hydrogen hubs around the country. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.